I'm glad that you're here today. We're going to do a message today that focuses on our vision, but before I get to that, I want to tease next week and what we're launching. Um, we're launching into an extended study in the letter to the Colossian church. Now, you may not even know what a Colossians is at this moment. That's okay. We're going to learn together because we're going to dive deep into a letter that was written by a man named Paul. You probably know him as Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter to a church that he had not been to yet, but he wanted them to be rooted in some truths. And I think this is going to be a critical series for us because we're going to learn what it means to be rooted in truth in our world today where it seems like truth is up for grabs. And there's all kinds of philosophies at play. And so we're going to learn what it means to draw some deep roots and see what kind of fruit that produces in our lives. So I'm going to invite you to be a part of that. I'm going to invite you to invite someone to be a part of that. If you are young and in college, this will be for you. If you are new to the faith, and you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is and what, which way Christianity is supposed to take you, this will be for you, because Paul's going to address, and he's going to talk about that. And if you've been a Christian your entire life, and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to go deeper, this is for you too. Now, I know that's a bold claim. This for everybody. But it's not because I'm so smart it's because this is what the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes in this letter. It's a short letter, and so you have my permission, this time only, to read ahead. Okay? Do not cheat on future series, okay? But you can read this week, read the book of Colossians, and next week when you arrive, we're going to have our scripture journals. We've used them before. I know that you guys really appreciate those, and some of you really use those to help grow spiritually. So we're going to have those available, and you're going to be blessed by that. So join us launching next week on Labor Day weekend, rooted and glad you're going to be a part of that. Well, today I want to share a, a reminder of the vision that we're in, because at the beginning of this year we launched this idea of Vision 5, and there's a vision that we've developed, but as we get to that, I'm going to do something of a confession and be a little bit transparent with you uh, this morning. And when we came to this vision, it came at a very unique time. And I'm going to go back to 2019, and my confession this morning is that if you and I had gone out for a cup of coffee and you'd said, Scott, I just want to know what's going on inside of you. I would have had to tell you, if I was being honest in the moment, that I was at a spiritually dry spot in my life. Now, there were all kinds of factors were going into it. Now, there wasn't a, a sin crisis or a scandal going on. But perhaps if you followed Jesus for seasons in your life, you hit a spot too where it was just dry. It didn't seem like the prayers that I was praying were working. It, it didn't seem like I could get focused on the things that God wanted me to be focused on. Sometimes, even in worship, I didn't have the old feels, if that makes sense. Part of it had to do with the fact my, my family was undergoing transition, and we were 
months away from launching my oldest off to college, and, and many of you have done that already, and so that was, but that was playing in, in my psyche. And so I was entering into a time that was just a difficult struggle. And there were some times where I feel like I'm going through the motions. Maybe you've been there. But it was really coming on strong. And I don't know, but perhaps it seems like looking back in the most difficult, sort of the deepest part of that, this thing called COVID came around. And suddenly the entire world goes sideways. And we began to have to figure out each and every week what church was going to look like. Are we going to keep meeting? Are we going to not meet? And you know all the questions that went with that. One thing that happened in that time is that the leadership team, the elders and the ministers, we began to meet weekly just because we had to. Because we needed to figure out not the next five years, we need to figure out the next five days. And so many people were working so hard during that time. Well, in one way, and I realized that COVID was, was difficult, and I'm, not, and I'm not taking anything away from that. But that became, in some ways, a distraction for me. It became a challenge. It became something that I had not faced before, as none of us had faced it before. And so God began to work on me in that. And one of the fruits that I could not have told you going into that, when it was only about survival mode. I mean, let's face it, we were just in, in what is this? What's it going to look like? What are we going to do? And we were just in survival mode. But because the elders and the ministers had been meeting weekly for prayer and for study and for discernment, that developed this powerful relationship, this powerful connection, this community the likes of which, and it's been good here, but I just hadn't experienced yet on that level because of the necessity of it. And as 2020 rolled into 2021 and 2021 rolled into 2022, in that season, that weekly meeting, God started to work on us with a vision. And God started to work on me and my heart. And started saying, Scott, this does not have to simply be rinse and repeat. Okay, This doesn't have to simply be go through the same motions and expect the same results and do the same thing, and it's always just going to remain in this status quo. Because as much as we like the status quo, because sometimes change rocks our world when we get upset, we get so complacent in the status quo, and that's where I was. But as we emerged out of that, and as we were having that type of fellowship together and that type of community together, and I was seeing God at work in so many ways, God did something in my heart. And he reignited a passion that the flame hadn't all gone out, but I was starting to wonder where it was. And so, in my estimation, now you may differ, but in my estimation, some of the preaching that, we've, that I've been able to do over the last several months has been, for me, some of the most passionate because of what God has ignited in me, and what I believe God is doing here in this church. And in that sequence of events, Vision 5, these five components of our vision arose. 
And I'm just telling you, they have set me on fire in so many ways, and I'm so eager and grateful to our shepherds for doing that. So here's, let me remind you what these are. And these are the ones that we've committed to beginning at the beginning of this year that arose out of that season of prayer, out of that season of study, out of that season of what does God want from us as we change from how do we survive the next five days as a church to God, you're calling us into something into the future. And so the first one was this. The first one was everyone leads someone, someone else to Jesus. Everyone lead someone to Jesus. And this is the idea that we want everybody that's a part of the Western Hills Church to participate in this idea of sharing your faith. That there is something about it. Now, this one I'm very selfish on. Because as an old youth minister, I got to experience this tenfold in my world. I I had a chance in my ministry to work with young students that they were right in that moment of making a decision for Jesus and so you get to be a part of that, and you get to feel like you're in that. And I just got to tell you, that feeling is pretty addictive. And so our prayer as a leadership is that we want that for everybody, that there's someone, there's a person in your sphere, in your influence, that you feel a burden to, to lead somebody else to cross that line of faith. I'm praying for that. Second one ties right into it. We're praying for a harvest of baptisms. We're praying that God would do what only God can do. In fact, Ephesians talks about that to him who can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. We're praying for God to do that. I'm going to take that as an amen. We're praying for that. We're praying that God can do immeasurable more than ask or imagine. And in my mind, here's how oh, little faith your ministry is. I thought, okay, we'll see a difference hopefully year four and a half. Somewhere in there we might start seeing a difference. God's already delivering that promise. We've had numerous baptisms. Last week we gathered out in the, in the courtyard to celebrate Uriah confessing her faith in Jesus. And we surrounded a a horse trough. And we watched one more be baptized. And I I had a conversation with Sandy Detheridge. And he he had this great observation. He said, you know, Jesus was born in a manger. And now she's born in a trough. That'll preach. And that's happening. And so what we're, we're praying that that would become simply common place here. I don't ever want to lose its specialness, but that it would be so consistent. That's why we celebrate it so much. Third one's this. We're praying that God continue to increase our diversity, become a diverse church, not because it's popular in the culture, but because that's what the kingdom of God is. That would be ethnically diverse, financially diverse, age diverse, that we would be a place that we say, there is room at this table for you. If you seek to make Jesus Lord of your life, there is room here. Which means that not everybody's going to think exactly like we think right now. Not everybody's going to look exactly the same. And in some ways, that should scare us to death because 
that's a challenge. But God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Fourth one's this. This is what we call the extra mile. We want to be an extra mile to serve our community. That both means in actual distance, and we've kind of identified a two miles around our building to see what God would have for us there. And God's been showing us different things, ways we can get involved in there. One of the things that happened when we were beginning to um, pray about this is the Temple PD reached out and said that we're looking for chaplains. And myself and another pastor in town, Ellen Johnson, have become two chaplains for the police department. And now we have a connection in that we did, did not exist a year ago. That, and some of the conversations and the opportunity that I've had for that, I'm going to ask you to pray about that. Make sure you be in prayer for me as I do that, because I'm jumping into, into an opportunity that, that is brand new and fresh to me. I've done this pastoring thing, this preaching thing for a while, but I haven't sat in too many police cars. Not in the front seat. Any, oh, no. <laughs> I haven't sat in the back seat either. But the idea is that we're going to go the extra mile to serve the community and not just, not just limited to two miles around this. Wherever you find yourself, and we are a regional church, so we are spread. And so if you start magnifying and imagining the capabilities and the possibilities of that, of where we could be across this central Texas is each person here sees himself as a minister and goes the extra mile in the place where they've been positioned. Where God has strategically placed you, the impact is enormous. So one of the things we've already done is we had a, a week ago, we celebrated our teachers, or two weeks ago we celebrated our teachers. And, and you may not have been aware, but each of our folks that are associated in our independent school districts they're teaching and influencing somehow on campus or administration or they're serving in the lunchroom, whatever. We issued $100 gift cards for them to take and bless their classroom, to bless a student. And we're already hearing some of those stories come back. And it's incredible to see what God's doing through the church as we go the extra mile. And the last one is really the big, hairy, audacious goal. That's one that we want to partner with a church plant. Either we want to plant ourselves or be a partner of one, but somehow we want in on the action that, that inside North America, somewhere in the United States, we're helping create another group of people that come together in the name of Jesus, praise His name, share in the communion, and reach their community. And we want to be a part of that because Christians replicate Christians. Churches replicate churches, and we want to do that. So one thing, we've already gathered. Uh, they're in the early stages. We've gathered a development team to help us figure out how that's even done. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know how it's done. This is not a goal that we had all the answers for, and then we rolled out. So I'm going to need you praying for this. But we've got a group already that's come together, and they're going to be praying about it. And they're going to be researching and they're going to be examining different ways and talking to different churches and finding different organizations and starting from scratch and figuring out how is this even done so that within five years somehow we're a partner or we're planting a church in North America. And why North America? Because we've got 
mission around the world, and that's wonderful. We don't take anything away from that. But we'd love to be a part of something where if your family goes on a vacation, you could stop by and worship there. You, you, if you had a business trip somewhere in the area, you could stop by and encourage the Christians there. And then everybody can participate in that. So those are the five visions. Now, the question would be, why? Why would we do that? Because this is going to take prayer. This is going to take sacrifice. This is going to take money. This is going to take dedication to it. This is going to make us uncomfortable at times. Why would we launch into something like this? And I want to go to Luke chapter 15 in the time we have left to provide what I believe Scripture teaches is the answer for that. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 15. When we go into Luke 15, or we go into Scripture, and we see Jesus, and what Jesus is doing is he's been teaching and preaching, and he's gathered his ministry around him. And because of how he's lived his life, because of how he's teaching, because of how he's loving people, gathered around him or as an unusual bunch. It's, it's a group of ne'er-do-wells. If you read in first, the first verse, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That's an important verse. Because what Luke, who wrote this gospel, this history of Jesus, is he's saying, let me tell you who's the closest to Jesus. And when he says tax collectors... That was a trigger word for everybody. Because I know we crack jokes about tax collectors today, and I don't know of anybody that celebrated 80,000 new IRS agents or whatever. But when you said it then, you might as well have said traitor. Because that's what they were. And it's funny to me that they always get their own category. They're so evil, they get their own category. But here's these traitors... And the sinners. And Luke notes that they were all gathering around Jesus. Those that were least like him, liked him the most. They wanted to be the closest to him. Now that may describe you. Maybe you feel like you're far off. And you can't be close to God. You can't be close to Jesus. Well... Chapter, Luke chapter 15 is for you. So they're gathering around Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers... Now here, again, what you need to hear is... In fact, if you're taking notes in your Bible, and I would definitely encourage that. But the Pharisees and the teachers, if you want, just take a pen or a pencil and write above that, the church people. Some of you got that. The church people and the teachers of the law muttered. Now, I know it's hard to believe that good standing folks would ever mutter. I had to look up mutter. So what, I, I've always used the word, but maybe I'm using it incorrectly. So when you look up for the synonyms of mutter, it comes out gripe and complain. But when the church people saw, they griped and complained. Now, I know that would never happen here. 
You're only indicting yourself at this point. But just imagine that it did. They're seeing who's gathering around Jesus and they've got a problem with it. Because it doesn't match their image. It doesn't fit their square. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. That's the total acceptance of fellowship right there. When you sat down and you had a meal in this culture, it wasn't nice pleasantries. It was saying, we're together in this. We're on board with each other. And so, what he does is, he launches into a teaching. So this is who's gathered around. And the question that's being posed by this is, what's God like? Jesus, you claim to come from God. What's he like? Because there's this dichotomy of the people that are least like God are gathered closest to Jesus. So, Jesus, you're going to have to help us out. What's God like? And what should we think about the people that are gathered around you? So it begins this way. Then Jesus told them this parable. A parable is a story. It's an illustration that Jesus is about to give. And he's about to launch into it. Now, for many of you, you've grown up with parables, you've heard about parables, there's nothing new. And unfortunately, what happens when we become so familiar with something, it loses its edge. It doesn't have the same kind of bite that it used to. My son Caden, now in Abilene, at the church he goes to, Jared Robinson, the preacher that preaches there, recently used this illustration, and Caden told me about it, and I thought, that's perfect. What Jared did is a parable is supposed to make us slow down. And it's supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. However, most of us are so familiar with them that we know the ending of them, and so we're not really that uncomfortable with them. What Jared said, said, and this is the great part that I want to share with you, it's like when you see somebody on the side of the road and they're holding a sign that says, Hungry, need help. And this dialogue starts inside of you. Man, I feel guilty. Do I not help? I want to help. What if I'm just enabling them to stay where they are? And suddenly you're having this kind of conversation. Sometimes you want to look. Sometimes you look away. And it just puts you into all kinds of stress. And you really wish you had never seen them, right? That's a parable. Because it's supposed to make us look inside and in many ways be uncomfortable. And so he launches into the parable, and he's going to tell the story. Remember, he's got people right around him that shouldn't be there. And then he's got all the other Pharisees, teachers of the law, the church folks. They're kind of the second layer out. They don't want to get too close to the sinners because they don't want to rub off on them. And so they're listening too, and he tells this, and he launches into them. Suppose, this is an illustration, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now he asks a question. Understand, now, you may not be a sheep rancher here today. That's okay. I'm not either, but here's what everybody would have said when he asked this question. Yes, the sheep is valuable. You've got 99, you go find the one because you start with 100, you want to end with 100. That's what you do because there's value there. He goes on. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends' neighbors together 
and says, Rejoice with me. Now, I want you to start paying attention through this whole chapter, the number of times that celebration words come up. Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing. So Jesus is now giving the behind the scenes of the, of the illustration. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, you know what Jesus is doing? He's looking right above that first crowd, and he's making eye contact with that second crowd. And he says, you think you've got it all because your life's all together, and there's going to be more rejoicing over one of these ones that are standing right around me than the hundreds of you that have already committed. Well, just in case they didn't get the point, he goes on. Then Jesus told them this parable. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? These coins would have been part of a dowry. They would have been a significant financial value to her and to her future security. So once again, when he asks this question, everybody in the audience nods, yes, you know, if you lose money... You go find money. That's just that's natural to all of us today. So everybody's nodding yes. And he says, And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so again, here's this rejoice. Jesus, what's God like? And now he's told them two stories. And both the stories has the God that goes out and looking and seeking. And so far, everybody's nodding with the stories. That makes sense. That makes sense. Why? Because in both instances, the, the object of the search has great value that nobody disputes. And so nobody's uncomfortable yet. Scott, where does the uncomfortable part come in? He tells them one more story. And this is the one. This is the one that unnerves that outer group right there. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Heads up. When the son says this, he's asking for his inheritance. He's asking for more than his inheritance. Because the, the second son should not get half. He gets less than half, because that goes to the first son. The bulk of it goes to the first son. But, so he's asking more than he deserves, and he's saying to the dad, I don't have time to wait for you to die. Can we act like you're dead already? Imagine one of your children having this conversation with you. Imagine you having this conversation with your parents. So, when Jesus delivers this line, everybody in the circle said, What a scoundrel. I hope he gets what he deserves. And Jesus says this. Not long after that, the younger son 
got together all he had, set off for the distant country because the Father gave it to him. The Father let him have it. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, everybody that's hearing the story is going, yep, we could have told you that's how that was going to come out. We could tell you he wasn't going to be a good financial planner. So he goes on. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, now you know what everybody's thinking? Ha, 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 serves him right. I like where the story's going. Next. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Again, this is not a Jewish person. So already we're sliding down the slope of acceptability. And he's not a Jewish person. Now he's hired himself out to some foreign person that that would have considered made him unclean. And what that person hires him to do is to feed his pigs. And if you know anything about the Jewish practice is that pork is um, an abomination. It is not part of what you can eat, touch, or even be around. The Jewish folks did not raise pigs as livestock. So here he is out not just around them, but he's having to care for them, and he's feeding them, and it keeps getting worse. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his census, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? Now, this is a rock-bottom moment. I mean, he's, he's hired himself out, he didn't think he'd have to work ever again, by the way, because he thought, I'm going to live off this wealth. He hired himself out, and now he's so hungry that he is slopping pigs, tempted to steal food from them. So he comes to a census. How many of my father's hired, hands, hired servants have food to spare, and I'm starving to death? And so he comes up with a plan. I'll set out. I'll go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, at this point, everybody around Jesus is going, man, he's getting what he deserves. He's getting what he deserves. And when he gets home, he'll get it double. Until Jesus delivers this line. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Nobody saw that coming when Jesus told the story. What they expected was when they saw him coming, when the father saw him coming, the father was filled with indignation, with anger, with righteous rage. With stern discipline. Nobody expected filled with compassion. And while they're still processing that, watch how Jesus doubles this down. For he ran to his son. Men of esteem did not go running. Okay? It means that he had to gather up the cloaks and the robes they wore and he kind of puts them over the rope belt, and so it looks a little silly. This is why you didn't do it if you're any kind of person with self-esteem. And he goes running through 
the streets and probably shouting, my son's home, my son's home, my son's home. And when the son had left home, understand what he did is he didn't just bring shame to himself and to the family because it's such a communal mindset. He brought shame to the entire town. And now the town sees him coming and they think it's time to give him what he deserves. And so they form not a welcome home line, they form a shame line. Because he's going to have to walk down the center of the street and let them remind him of what they've done. And here comes the dad running up the other end of the street. And they just about got the line in place. And they're ready with the rotten vegetables or whatever they're going to do. And now dad runs through the line of shame. He ran to, He threw his arms around him. He probably still smelled like pigs. And the people gathered around him are going, Jesus, this guy is so unclean. He's like layer upon layer upon layer of unclean. You cannot get around him and you sure can't touch him. And then Jesus doubles down one more time and says, and he kissed him. And you know everybody around him lost their mind at that point. What's going on? This is not, We got parable number one. That was good, Jesus. We got parable number two. That was nice, Jesus. What is up with parable number three? He finishes it this way. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. So he's right into his speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, the father's not even listening. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and so they began to celebrate. The first two, yes, they should have ended in celebration. This one was not supposed to end in celebration. But Jesus is answering the question of what is God like, and here is his answer. What he says is this, God seeks and he celebrates. God seeks and he celebrates. God is in pursuit of you. And you may think he's trying to catch you, to discipline you, to ground you, to scold you, to shame you. But he is in pursuit of you because he wants to reclaim you and he wants to celebrate. That's what God, that is what's on God's heart. He's not trying to catch you, to punish you. He wants to bring you back. We serve a God that seeks you. Now, did you notice in all three of the parables, it's the God character that does the seeking? So I don't want to take anything away from you, but every now and then we're tempted to say, here's my story, and here's where I was going, and it was going off a bad path, and then I found God. Scripture teaches that you didn't find God. God found you. That's the grace of Jesus. And so he's the God that's seeking and chasing and he is asking the question of you and I, will we celebrate with him when he finds his children that he is seeking to rescue? Heard a great story. Came from a book by Robert Strand and it's called Moments for Mothers is the name of the book. But he tells the story of a family in Glasgow, Scotland. And the young daughter was in rebellion to her parents. 
and she kept trying to live one life, and her parents were trying to ground her in belief, and she just kept rebelling and rebelling. Finally, it just got so bad that she left home, and she spent years away from her parents with no contact. She was so far gone from her parents that she didn't realize that her dad had passed away, and she didn't realize that mom had kept looking for her every single day. One point, this life, just like the younger son and the story that Jesus told, her life began to mirror that, and so she became more and more destitute, eventually living on the streets, selling her body, and using the local charities, the mission works, to survive. She walks into a store one day, and she sees on the bulletin board a picture that she recognizes. It's her and her mom, and it says, come home. I still love you. And what she doesn't realize in that moment is that her mom had scoured, had been looking for her, had posted this picture up on any laundromat, on any restaurant, on any grocery store, any place where they let her post the picture saying, come home. So she goes home. She actually arrives home in the very middle of the night, and she reaches. She's trying to decide whether or not to knock on the door or not, but she, she puts her hand on the door trying to decide if she's going to wake her mom or not or scare her or what the reception is going to be like, she taps on the door and, realize, and it swings open, and now she's afraid, why is the door open? She runs in thinking that perhaps somebody's come in to hurt her mother. She finds her in bed asleep. She wakes her up, and now she's a little panicked, so everybody's at a high heart rate now. She says, why was the door open? Why was the door open? And the mom looks at her and says, ever since you left, it's never been locked. That's what Jesus is telling this group. He's saying, I don't care how far you think you are from God, he's still in search of you. And so to that first group that's gathered around him, and maybe you find yourself in that first group, that first group that's gathered right around him, he's saying, God's looking for you, and he wants to draw you close. And then to the second group, He's got a real question for him. Will you celebrate at the same time? Because look how the story ends. He goes on with the story. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. And refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. You need to understand the parable of the prodigal son is a story of two times. That God does the motion. God went and looked for the younger son. God goes out and looks for the older brother. The father went out and pleads with him. The brother answers, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive again. He's lost and he's found. We serve a God that celebrates challenge to us is will we be the older brother or will we celebrate with who God celebrates 
Because what I want you to notice is God's going to throw a party. God never asks for permission to throw a party. He doesn't seek permission. He sends out invitations. That's the only way it is. So the party's happening. It's not up to us to decide if there will be a party. The, uh, what's up to us is will we join the party? So here's a takeaway. When we see God clearly, the more we will see people clearly. Because we will see them the way God sees them. Spiritual maturity is not based on how many times you come to church, how often you read your Bible, how many things you can memorize. I am for every one of those things. Don't get me wrong. But that does not determine spiritual maturity. It can contribute to it, but it's not proof of it. Proof of your spiritual maturity, the sign of it will be this. The more you love people the way that God loves people. Jesus gathered with his disciples on the very last night and said, a new command I give to you, love each other as I have loved you. This is our why. This is why we're committed to Vision 5. Because it is our tangible way of beginning to love all those around us like Jesus does. So my question for you is, where are you in the story? You need to receive Jesus? Or do you need to celebrate with those who are?